Right, uh, good evening everybody. Um, welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this Department of Anthropology Lieberhume Public Lecture. I'm Simon Glendening and I'm not in the uh, Department of Anthropology. I'm actually in the European Institute, but I'm delighted to chair this session covering, as it does, issues which I'm struggling with myself. Um, I was very struck recently that a French author, a French philosopher called Jacques Derrida, writing in 1992, wrote that thinkers who are serious about questions of religion and secularism today, quote, ought to begin by turning our attention towards Islam. And he goes on to talk about what people talk about, the surge or déferlement, the wave of Islam. So already in 1992, we're often told that 9-11 changed everything. Perhaps it did no more than turn our attention to something already underway. And we know too that Christianity has had and is increasingly having a voice or wanting to have a voice in countries governed by principles of a political culture that we call secular. The idea there was meant to be the virtue of a public space liberated from domination by religious orthodoxy or religious authority. In this space where our attention then is turned this way and that, it seems confusion reigns. On the one hand, as I heard a representative of the Catholic Church saying yesterday, an aggressive secularism seems to be gaining ground. On the other hand, if you talk to aggressive secularists, or just anybody, they might say that there's a revival of religion gaining ground. So what times are these? Well, to help us to think about this time when confusion reigns, I'm delighted to welcome here from the University of Washington in St. Louis, not uh, the University of Chicago, Professor John Bowen, who is indeed the Dunbar Van Cleve Professor in Arts and Sciences. And these lectures that he's going to be giving are the first in a series of three, the second of which will take place on Tuesday the 2nd of March, which will be focused more specifically on issues around Islam and Islam across time and place. Well, if that lecture is going to be concerned with different surges of Islam, perhaps better to understand one that may or may not be happening today, in this lecture he'll be dealing with complexities of contemporary secularity, that other side of our reigning confusion. Um, John is well placed to talk to you today about this. His most recent book, which I just saw a wonderful front cover of, of is called Can Islam Be French? Pluralism and Pragmatism in a Secularist State. But today he'll be talking to us under the title Secularisms in Crisis. Thank you, John. There we go. Well, Simon, thank you for saving me the first page. So I was going to talk about confusion and then mention the, the series of topics 
for these for these uh, three lectures. Can you hear me all right? We have the sound uh, well balanced. So I'll really just start in with, uh, with today's, which is called Secularisms in Crisis. And I'm not so much holding to secularisms versus secularities, but trying to develop an analytical approach that's going to be useful for us as people in the social and human sciences. We've, uh, many of us in many countries have been talking much more about secularism and religion over the last 20 years. I think there are two kinds of developments which have led to this in increased conversation. One are questions posed in countries of Europe and North America about the legitimate role of religious groups and religious norms in public life, Islamic dress and buildings in Europe, Christian biblical texts and teachings in US public spaces, definitions of Jewish, Jewishness for purposes of state aid to schools in England. We commonly call these societies secular. Is that correct? One of today's main news stories I'm sure you all read about concerned the Pope's criticism of England's equality bill on grounds that it represents unjust interference in the workings of the church by requiring the employment of gay people. Is this inadmissible in a secular society? Many people say it's, it is inadmissible. Or is it the appropriate act of a religious leader protecting the institutions of his church? These are questions we're still trying to sort out. There's been a second set of developments that have added to our attention to these issues, having to do with religious organizations or movements in many parts of the world that have made special claims for a role in, a role in political and legal life. Hindu nationalists in India, but particularly Islamic movements in many Muslim-majority countries, usually as a matter of proposals to restructure legal systems around Islam. Can such systems be considered secular in any reading of that term? I'll actually argue today, yes, they can be. But I want to ask how we can best understand these developments and how to think about them. They concern an array of countries around the world with different religious compositions and quite different histories of state religion relationships. Do we try to make sense of this wide array? Or do we say that the West is one set of traditions and values and the rest of the world is another and the two are just incompatible and incomprehensible one to the other? If we say that, and some have, including famously Samuel Huntington, but uh, quite a large number of recent commentators as well, then we basically say that we have separate moral worlds, that we can live together perhaps, but without real dialogue. This does not seem very helpful, but if we try to make sense of how religion and state relate for an array of countries, including, say, France and India, England and Malaysia, then what sort of framework is sufficiently capacious? Answering that question is my task tonight. And then, as Simon said, next time I'll be talking about uh, approaches to Islam, and the third time we're combining the two, talking about Islam in Europe in particular. <coughs> so I have criteria for selecting among several possible approach, approaches to studying secularity. I think concepts for us as people in the social and human sciences need to have some relation to our general intuitions about what the word ought to mean. We can't say it's bananas or, or, or wagons or something. It has to have some relationship to how we use it. And I want it to be able to be useful in comparing widely different societies for reasons I just laid out. But also, it has to allow us to analyze the specific workings of each society that we study. So it has to have analytical power, but also be capacious. Let me consider several possible definitions or approaches. One, the first broad sense of secularism, is considering it to be a general feature of modernity. You often hear a phrase like, the secular. There are many versions of this. I'll give you two. One is a subjective one that comes most notably from Charles Taylor, 
for whom the secular age is defined by irreducible and indeed irremediable pluralism of religious convictions with which a believer and especially one committed to universalistic religious programs must come to terms. In some ways this is his own coming to terms with the age in which he lives. One could, however, also say that this was the sense in which some fundamentalist Christian movements in the United States in the early part of the 20th century saw secularism, thinking, concluding from that perception that they must withdraw from the world, tend their own gardens, and await the millennium. So immovable did contemporary secularism seem. Now this use of the word in, in Charles Taylor's analysis and that of many others has to do with the, the social processes caused by the division of labor, the differentiation of institutions, uh, etc. Others, however, particularly people influenced by Michel Foucault, focus on the role of the modern state as the source of secularism, now seen as a distinct space governed by the state. Talal Assad in the United States is one of the best known proponents of this view. For Assad, secularism is based on Protestant Christian understandings of religion as disembodied, an individual faith, and on interstates rather than outward practices. Secularism, or the secular, is not so much about a differentiation between religious and secular spheres, or about the generation of toleration from the 17th century onward, as it is about the sovereign power of the modern nation state. This then becomes the thesis of secularism as a mode of international hegemony in Assad's writing a construct that relegates religion to the private sphere and vaunts the Western configurations of state and religion over others. Well, if you follow this argument, then it's a bit difficult to look for secularism anywhere but, but in those modern, dominant Western states, which means that you find well when you find well-informed analysts of non-Western societies talking about them as secular, you have to say that, well, they're mistaken. India causes some problems here, as do other cases. It becomes contradictory to try to identify secularism in non-Western societies. Secularism is a tool of the modern state for dominating society and a tool of the West for dominating the rest. Whether you take the subjective or the political version of this approach, you end up postulating that certain general historical processes shape all cases, and indeed you end up, I think, ruling out ex ante any claims to finding secularism outside the West. This is less of a problem for Charles Taylor, who is really only concerned with Western notions of identity. It's more of a problem for Talal, Talal Assad, who after all was trained as an anthropologist and writes very perceptibly about the Middle East. But because people holding this position continue, consider the secular to be a general historical phenomenon, it becomes difficult to use the notion to study differences across countries, as well as potential comparabilities across the West-Rest divide. So that's one meaning, perfectly valid, and indeed I will refer back to it, but it's not the one I find useful for the reasons I just gave you. There's a second one, which I believe how you like to use the term secularist, which is a normative stance, saying that we ought to distinguish between and separate two classes of statements and institutions, those that have to do with religious convictions on the one hand, and other kinds of convictions on the other. One may have an established bank, an established form of government, or even an established form of science, but not in our post-Lockean, post-toleration societies, established religions. Of course, there are others who take normative stances who simply say that religion is error and should be combated, but that's not my concern here. Now, this approach might seem to be amenable to constructing an analytical framework, but in fact it ends up being a way in which theoreticians within specific countries critique their own existing arrangements. And here I'm bound to be 
uh, argued with by any political theorist in the room because my own political theory colleagues uh, dislike this sort of relativizing that I always do, sociological relativizing. <coughs> Liberal political philosophers in the United States, for example, develop arguments to support certain kinds of separation of religious from political spheres. They also justify these arguments by saying that they pick up on how their fellow citizens think this think. Uh, think. This work is often done by words such as reasonable, especially in the case of John Rawls, or how the political system ideally works. And then they try to render those intuitions about how people think systematic. So I, I gave you two names. John Rawls, of course, uh, is very well known for his theory of justice. And his later political conception of justice, even more pertinently, is a particular clear case of this process, trying to separate out the, the political concept of justice from other sorts of convictions one might have, which should be separated. But so is Michael Walzer's superb book, Spheres of Justice, uh, where he also argues for the importance of this separation. Rawls argues that having religious reasons for public policy positions is illegitimate if they are presented as such in political debates. Some, uh, Robert Audi and others, go even further to say that even if religious convictions are kept hidden, if they lie behind secular arguments, then they are not amenable to democratic deliberation and so also are illegitimate. Indeed, this is the, one of the issues raised by the Pope's remarks yesterday. Is it illegitimate to introduce religious considerations into politics? My problem with this as an analytical approach is that most people in the United States, where Rawls and, and, and Walzer were writing, would argue that religious convictions should underlie political positions. And indeed, the US political process strongly favors Protestants who openly accept Jesus Christ. On this point, American political theory probably corresponds well to the intuition shared among professors in the humanities at secular institutions, but not to those of the electorate. Does this mean that the United States is not secular? Only if secular is taken to be the normative position elaborated by theorists and jurists. But then I'm afraid we would start very quickly to run out of secular societies. Consequently, I don't find the normative view how religion and public life ought to be related as a useful view for our task. It's useful for other tasks, but not for ours. And even more so when we recall that this task, as I put it to you, is to develop a capacious view of secularism, one that could be useful in thinking through situations across a range of societies. So problems associated with both of these approaches, the first one, that of the secular, is very difficult when we want to compare. And the second one, the normative stance, is very difficult when we want to analyze. Number three, as you might guess, is going to be better. We live in an Indo-European world, and we're all Hegelians somewhere in our inner beings, and you would be right if you thought so. What I want to do is look at craft a family of notions of secularisms that have to do with modes of governing religions. And as I indicate, I'm going to borrow here from Will Kimlicka. I also see a focus on modes of governing religions as a way of combining the best of the first two approaches. There have been uh, a series of historical developments tied to the rise of modern states. Those are very important, as Foucault and Assad stress. And they do involve a set of normative commitments on the part of key actors and theorists, as people advocating the second position stress. But I won't define secularism as governance in terms of either political modernity or in terms of a commitment to separation of religion and state. Those of you who know Taylor's work will remember that he also has three meanings of secularism. Mine are, are different because 
I find he neglects the social underpinnings of his subjective awareness, his subjective division, definition of pluralism. We can come back to that if you, if you wish. So um, this is my starting point for this and following lecture. So how can we, if we're looking at modes of governing religions, decide what is secular and what is not? Well, without reviewing all the alternatives, some people say we should remain in the West. Some people say you have secularism in those countries where people use the word. You almost have to go out and do a poll on the street. I want to propose a way of doing it and then see how well it works. I want to try it out. And you'll tell me whether I succeed. I think it will have to be distinct from any of the specific views of secularism that are developed within particular theoretical traditions, such as Rawls's liberal view or French Republican ones, so that may we, we may use it for a comparison. I'm, I'm, I submit that Will Kimlicka's way of approaching multiculturalism works pretty well for secularism as well, with some amendments. In a wonderfully clear book, you may agree or disagree with it, but it's great for teaching, that Will Kimlicka wrote in 1995 called Multicultural Citizenship. Kimlicka argued that uh, the ways in which we, by which he meant liberal-minded Eastern Canadians, I think, approach multicultural claims, that's what my political theory colleagues hate is when I say things. The way we do so is based on sound intuitions that ought to be generalized. This is his argument. And he spent much of the past decade, he's a very prolific active theorist, doing that generalizing, trying, to, trying this out across the world. He said that we ought to, and indeed we do distinguish, between, on the one hand, the desire of people to celebrate their ethnic heritage, that's one meaning of multiculturalism, and on the other hand, claims that they might make to self-governance, a very a different one. Put very roughly, because this is not the concern of tonight, uh, the thesis, his thesis is that immigrants are in a very strong position to do the first, celebrate polyethnicity, poly celebrate ethnic identity, but not the second. Whereas groups that predate or are coeval with nation-state formation can legitimately claim status to national minorities, that's his phrase, and to some kinds of rights. Think indigenous peoples predating the state or French speakers around at the beginning and part of the formation of Canada. But claims to self-governance rest on two considerations, and this is the bit I want to poach for thinking about secularism. First, oh right, that's the synthesis, right, being Hegelian. First, the state allows, but also limits, the internal restrictions. I'm, I'm using Kimlicka's terms so that we can have some sense of perhaps usefulness across problematics of one thinker's framework the internal restrictions that groups impose on their members. So Quebecois people require signage in French, but the state says, well, yes, all right, but English also should be there. Catholics may bar women from assuming the priesthood, all right, that's an internal restriction, but the state says you can't keep women or gays from occupying any position in the church. That's the debate we're having now with the Pope. Um, the state finds limits based on norms and values that are above those of the particular groups such as non-discrimination, human equality, due process. All right, that's the first consideration. The second is what Kimlicka calls external protections, that groups have a right to certain external protections to preserve those things that they need in order to continue to function, either as minorities in his case or as religiously practicing citizens in ours. French speakers in Canada can demand the French language be protected, for example, Kimilka tries to defend this claim on liberal grounds in an argument that I don't think I'm alone in finding shaky, but that's not our concern tonight. But the principle can also follow for concerns over rights of association. Religious groups may protest 
against being overly taxed. Or they may even request state aid to properly carry out worship. Now, here's what I wish to do. I, I wish to make these twinned normative claims the basis of an analytical framework for locating and analyzing secularism. Secular modes of governing religions are those that both provide external restrictions for religions, or external protections, excuse me, for religions, and place limits on their re internal restrictions. They don't just turn over control to communities, as did the Ottomans under the millet system, but intervene to ensure that certain nationwide or even global rules are applied. These rules are external to the religious system, as in the case of human rights or due process. Secular modes of governance don't just tolerate religious beliefs either, but they offer some sort of protections against either laws or social acts that would prevent people from living their religious lives. These range from protections of beliefs to support for building houses of worship. They might well have established churches, as in England, but that has little bearing on the relative rights of other religious groups to thrive, as many here have observed. So establishment is no bar to having a secular mode of governance. But I want to add a third component to this concept, that of even-handedness. This is absent from Kimlicka's framework because I think for him it's the relative precedence in time that gives some groups a right to self-governance, whereas for our purposes this is really not critical. What is critical is a sense of the equitable application of whatever arrangements the state makes for religions. Of course, equity also allows for difference, as in the case of established religions. The issue is, do religions have the same substantive claims to important resources? Now, I view these criteria as making up an analytical tool. They do not resolve problems. This is not a quick and fast definition through, over which we can sort of run all of our naughty questions. They rather point us toward the key areas that are likely to be problematic. How far does the state limit internal restrictions? That's the question with the Pope. How far should it extend the external protections? That's the issue with Sharia councils. So they, they need protection by the state in order to continue their religious practices in England. Can, it, can the state be even-handed if one religion is established? This is the sense in which I think these criteria correspond to our intuitions. Now let's see if it does useful analytical work for a range of societies and is useful in analyzing the features of those societies. So these are our three ways of approaching different cases. Look to see how a state allows but limits internal restrictions. Look to see how it provides external protections and, and see whether it does so in an even-handed manner. This also, by the way, although it's not a point I'll take up here, we can talk about it later, gives us a normative position with which we can then develop critiques of certain arrangements. But I'm not, again, going to talk about that uh, much in what follows. So I take two cases, uh, France and then Indonesia. These are, the two, these are two places where I've happened to do field work. So that's useful. Uh, but they also represent very different societies and will bring up different kinds of questions. I'll talk about France a little bit more, in part because I have a chair from the European Institute, in part because I'll go back to considering Indonesia in the, lex in the next uh, lecture. Um, so I'll start with France. And here I want to pose a methodological question for all of us who study um, European countries, but also others. Should we start, when we analyze uh, arrangements in a particular country, with a dominant way of speaking about these issues within the society, the national model. For France, as for the US, the idea of separation and of church and state often serves as a starting point for most discussions of these topics. But is it useful? I'll argue in the French case, no, it's not. The dominant tendency in most discussions in France about these, oh, sorry, I don't skip over that. 
most discussions about these issues in history or philosophy or sociology is the concept of la laicite. Secularity, perhaps we could translate it as, but we often keep it in French because of its particular resonances in French, uh, French discourse. And indeed, the way in which the whole history of religion-state relations are usually presented in France talk about the history of laicite, from its origins in uh, the wars of religion to toleration, uh, through uh, a, a, a tumultuous 19th century to the law of 1905, to which I will uh, return, the law separating religion and state. Indeed, the 19, 1905 law, and especially Article 2, is nearly always taken as best expressing the ideal of laicite, even though the term does not figure in the law. In these accounts, the 1905 law ch changed religions from publicly recognized and supported bodies into private affairs. By reducing religions to associations, to elements in civil society, the law emancipated individuals from a state-supported religious regime, leaving them free to join or remain apart from religions. I'm thinking of people like Marcel Gaucher and others who, who really serve as the sort of major public philosophers of these issues. So the, the dominant image is the Republic showing the church to the door in 1905. Now this story is appealing. But as with Mer American notions of a wall of separation between church and state, it is not found in the laws. It does not tell the history very well. It does not adequately characterize the current relationships of state to religious bodies. And it expresses a normative stance more than an analytical conclusion. So I'm not going to have time to trot out the entire argument about, uh, 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 on these issues. But I want to first consider the law of 1905, and you'll see why in a minute, and then the current modes of governing religions. The law of 1905, was it separation of church and state? It was in fact part of a tumultuous period of 10 years between the Dreyfus crisis of 1898 and laws passed in 1907 and 1908 regarding control of church property. Much of these battles during this period, these 10 years, had to do with the question of who was to control schools, a battle that had been waged throughout much of the previous century and had led to the setting up of public and free schools in the 1880s by Jules Ferry. Minister of Education and then Prime Minister. So first the Dreyfus Affair, that the unjust accusation and imprisonment for treason of a young officer of Jewish descent, an accusation supported by Catholic organizations and denounced in, in 1898 by anti-clerical intellectuals, most famously Zola, Jacques. It reframed the long struggle to create public schools as a much sharper battle between the Republic and the Church, in which anti-Semitism, and anti-clericalism increasingly colored the two entrenched positions. And the laws passed in the first few years of the 20th century reflected this strong anti-clerical sentiment on the part of people in charge of the Republic. By fall 1903, the anti-clerical minister, Emile Combe, had closed 10,000 Catholic schools and had Parliament pass a law forbidding members of religious orders from teaching. 1905, a slight shift in government, inaugurated what we can, could consider a relatively liberal period. It's famous Article 2. No. The Republic does not privilege, subsidize, or recognize any organized religion. Had to do with cult, the word that translated as religion. And by a cult was and is meant an organized religion with ministers, buildings, and sacred texts. In the short term, what was affected here were the four publicly financed religious bodies that had been set up by Napoleon, two Protestant churches, Catholics and Jews. But the law went on, the law of 1905, went on to provide a legal way for the faithful to form private associations of their own with significant fiscal advantages. 
These associations then could or could have taken over the role previously played by the state and provided for the upkeep of buildings and properties and for the salaries of priests, ministers, and rabbis. So if the law of 1905 had, had been applied to Catholics, which it never was, that people often don't know, we would have had a very liberal, liberal in the European sense, religious regime in France with uh, the, the faithful owning their own buildings, taking care of, of salarying of, of priests. But the Pope denounced the law and forbade Catholics to form these associations. So in 1907, Parliament passed a law that gave church property to governments, depending on how, whether it was a cathedral or a regular church, and allowed the clergy to continue to occupy them and hold services in them without holding title to them. Then during the interwar period, governments needed to make peace with the Vatican, so they went further, recognizing Catholic schools as free schools, and in a further series of compromises that didn't end until 1959, and even then they were contested afterwards, agreed to pay salaries of teachers teaching in these private religious schools, and also give the schools additional finances. So the result of this dance between Parliament and Rome over a long period was that France moved from the Napoleonic arrangement, where the state paid for the expenses of four recognized religions and controlled much of their operation, including appointing bishops or nominating them technically, which the president still does for Alsace-Moselle, through a brief effort embodied in the 1905 law to create a quite different arrangement, one modeled on, the, on freedom of association and congregational responsibility for property, to a new hybrid arrangement, which came out of the struggle between the Republic and the Church, whereby France paid for expenses for churches and for Catholic schools. The state today, indeed, will pay the salaries of teachers at private religious schools on condition that they teach the national curriculum. Private schools may retain their particular characteristics, including religious ones, prayer times, clothing, etc., announcement of festivals, but must accept students without regard to origin, opinions, or beliefs. Indeed, about half of French school children at one time or another will be in a private religious school, which almost for 90% of them means a Catholic school. Through this series of about-faces and political struggles, France arrived at an arrangement whereby it offers external protections to religious groups in the form of state financing. These arrangements are legally even-handed in that Jewish, Protestant, and now Muslim and Sikh schools have applied for state funding as well, whether they're always equally even-handed in treatment is another question, but not bad. Schools may have internal restrictions. They're their particular religious character, but these are limited. For example, religious teaching may not be for more than one hour per week. But the broader picture is that France long has governed religious bodies, culte, through practices of state control through support, control through support of the church. And so this is the more case-specific version of my general analytical framework. I trace these practices, as do many historians, back to the rather bloody ruler known as Philippe le Bel, he died in 1314, so it's a long history, who asserted political control over the church, thus inaugurating the tradition of maintaining an independent French or Gallican church vis-a-vis -vis Rome, and of controlling this church from the palace. Despite the sharp changes that occurred thereafter, the Edict of Nantes, 1598, allowing the practices of Protestantism, the Revolution of 1789, Napoleon's reign, and the successions of empires and republics thereafter, this model of state regulation of, chur of church affairs continued to explicitly shape French politics until the late 19th century, and I believe implicitly thereafter. It is this particular approach to governing religion that differentiates French forms of religious toleration as a matter of royal regulation 
fact, with the current president, we can go back to calling it royal regulation of a recognized religion from others. For example, from English religious toleration, which grew out of a generalized recognition of freedom of conscience applied to dissenting Protestants. The Gallican model also shaped republican practices regarding religious thought and practice. We locate the guarantees of freedom of conscience, we meaning all of us in general, in the Declaration of Rights of Man, wherein religious beliefs are presented as the limiting case of this freedom. Nobody shall be harassed for their beliefs, even religious one reads the text. But individual freedom of religious practice is another matter, and it was and is to be guaranteed by the state through its regulatory power over religious bodies. The 1790 civil constitution of the clergy required priests to take a new oath to the constitution. And Napoleon's Concordat stipulated that the state would recognize and finance the four religious organizations, Catholic, Reform, Jewish, and uh, Lutheran, employ their ministers and own their buildings. The most famous sta statement often quoted from this period about religions regards the emancipation of Jews, that they would be given full rights as citizens, but none as a community. We've all heard that. But at the same time that they ceased to exist legally as a distinct community, their religious practices and institutions were aggregated into a legal corporation, the consistory. The governance of religions continued along Gallican lines, goes through state regulation of religious institutions and not through self-determination of communities of the faith. The Gallican model demands the explicit subordination of religious bodies to the state and does so by creating privileged interlocutors with the state. For long-established religions in France, these interlocutors already exist, but for Muslims, the state had to create such a body. And from the 1980s on, successive interior ministers have fashioned Islamic policy with this requirement in mind. The major goal has been to create a body that could be the sole legitimate channel for Muslims' aspirations and demands to reach the ear of the state, a goal reached with the creation of the CFCM, the French Islamic Council, in 2003. Nicolas Sarkozy, then interior minister, basically locked a bunch of leaders up and said, you don't get to come out until you've agreed to form this council. At the same time, the state has demanded explicit allegiance of Muslim organizations to the state. Interior Minister Charles Pasqua and the Paris Mosque concocted a Muslim charter that was to sum up Muslims' expressions of fealty and that closely resembles the oath demanded of priests in 1790. This approach to governing religion fits well with Republican political philosophy, more generally. Republicanism posits that those who live together in a society must share certain basic values and that the state must act to ensure that new newborns and newcomers alike learn those values. From this perspective, the state ought to place potentially powerful shapers of values, religious bodies, first among them, but also labor unions or clubs of any sort, under its control. De Tocqueville, of course, had pointed to France's suspicion of intermediate corporate bodies as one of its more marked contrasts with association-prone North Americans. In recent years, Republican suspicion of intervening groups, corporations, has fallen most soundly on associations that represent what might be thought to be communal interests, those based on common ethnicity, origins, language, or religion. The fear of association getting in the way of the direct relationship between the individual and the state lies behind the constant accusations that Muslims are creating communalism, communitarismo. And schools have been the place where such, such suspicions are strongest because schools have long been regarded as the major mechanism by which the state shapes individuals of various backgrounds into citizens holding the same values. The French state then regulates religions and supports them 
run mainly out of the Religions Bureau in the Ministry of the Interior. Maybe you didn't know France's separation of church and state. They have a Bureau of Religions in the Ministry of the Interior. In 2003, the then director of the Bureau, Vianney Sylvestre, explained to me the scope of his mandate as head of the Bureau. Le culte, religion in this sense, religious organization, le culte involves three elements, he said. The celebration of, of the culte, as in the mass, its buildings, and the teaching of its principles. That's all. Freedom of culte is limited to these three domains. And then he went on in a rant about Scientology and how you allow it in the US, but you don't know what you're doing, etc. Um, because these are not protected activities. Distributing leaflets, wearing religious dress, hijab, for example, these are not part of the culte. So they are not protected by France's tradition of supporting and controlling religious groups. But for those that are recognized as legitimate, those religious bodies that are, the state provides significant tax advantages, facilitates the construction of buildings, helps with insurance, pays school salaries, and so forth. What then of the famous Article 2 of the law of 1905 that proclaims that the state neither recognizes, nor pays the salaries of, nor subsidizes any religion? Well, I asked Sylvester. I'm nosy. He explained it as not requiring not separation, but equitable treatment. And now we come to even-handedness. I quote Sylvester. This second article should be understood in this way. The Republic does not decide to favor one religion or to favor one school of thought within a religion. So the state, end, end of quote. So the state regulates, recognizes, and supports, and as long as it does so equally for all recognized religions, then it meets its obligations of fairness. From this analysis fa follows the arguments for extending to Muslims the fiscal and other benefits long enjoyed by Catholics. Here, both the state and the municipalities in France have made real efforts to support the building of mosques, beginning in the 1920s when the French government developed a practical paradigm for marking its status as a, quote, great Muslim power and decided to build a major mosque <coughs> in the center of Paris, today's great Paris mosque, when you, you can go and have a, have a bath and have a tea and so on. Today as well, municipal officials find ways to aid Muslim associations without violating the 1905 law. So most often, um, the, a mayor or an assistant to a mayor will lease land to a Muslim association for a very nominal sum, as low as one euro per year, as long as this Muslim group agrees to abide by certain sorts of conditions of transparency. If we think of the French system as being defined by a hands-off policy toward religious bodies, and if we take the 1905 law as embodying that policy, then all these activities seem to be opposed to the mainstream and in violation of the law. They may or may not be technically in violation of the 1905 law. The, the far right says they are, and they've sued, sometimes successfully. But these efforts follow the long-term pattern of French governments of regulating religious bodies by supporting them. These municipal officials, and in fact, Nicolas Sarkozy, Sarkozy used this phrase, see their task as, quote, bringing Islam into the light, which means both aiding Muslims to create visible places for worship and education, and pushing them toward accepting the republic with its laicite and its integration. The title of my lecture is Secularisms in Crisis, so what's the crisis? The crisis in France has been largely when the arrival of a more public presence of Islam in the 1980s forced French leaders to rethink in theoretical terms that which had been up to then the result of various compromises over the, de over the decades with the Catholic Church. You know the old joke, the English and the French scientists, the English says, well, it works in theory, does it work in practice? And the French says, well, I don't care if it works in practice, it works in theory. So <laughs> this has been the crisis. crisis, it's an intellectual crisis as much as anything else. At the same time that those compromises meant that state aid 
and municipality, the state and the municipalities were supporting Islam, not a few politicians and ordinary people saw the visible presence of Islam as destructive of France's identity. The rise of a new religious force also reminded many women of their battles with the Catholic Church over their rights to control their own bodies. The demands to have religious schools threatened the putative national unity assured by public schools and by social mixing. Of course, France, even without Muslims, is rife with contradictions. If the school of the Republic is the major way one produces identical French citizens, then there shouldn't be Catholic schools, not half of pupils going to Catholic schools. But now these contradictions become more and more politically uh, potent because of the negative reaction to Islam. Indeed, the reaction started with schools and since has proceeded to broader attacks on communalism and on value differences with Muslims. Muslims. Hmm, wrong way. Ah, there we go. A law passed in March 2004, after much debate, forbade pupils from wearing distinctive signs of their religious affiliation. Islamic headscarves were the target. The law's advocates claimed that the scarves asser uh, asserted and affirmed a divisive identity in the classroom and thus interfered with both the proper functioning of the classroom as a social body and also with the process of forging a Republican identity among the pupils as citizens of France above all other identities. To which many said, well, let's ban Nike emblems then and everything else which shows people's distinctive identities. That wasn't the issue. That's one instance. Secondly, the debates over Islamic scarves brought to the fore how much French conceptions of religion's role in public depend on very specific ideas about what's appropriate for specific social spaces, the role of space. Sometimes French officials speak as if religion should be absent from all public space. And indeed, a certain number of French citizens doubtless think this would be a good idea. When President Chirac came out in support of this law, he defined laïcité as, quote, the neutrality of the public space. Indeed, the 1905 law itself allows prefects to determine whether religious signs should be allowed or not on public buildings, whether bells should be rung. That's why you hear bells or not, depending where you are in France. A repugnance to build new religious signs in public on the part of many French citizens surely lies behind their strong opposition to minarets in many cities today. And what was my surprise, the very positive reaction that French people had to the Swiss vote against minarets. I would have thought they would be attacking the Swiss for failing to respect religious freedom, but no, not at all. Indeed, if laïcité were to define the character of public space generally, then it could be cited as the justification for excluding religious signs from any shared social space, or at least from all government spaces. Some uses of public, perhaps even those in President Chirac's speech, in, have invited such extension. So there have been uh, city officials uh, preventing women from entering uh, a, a city hall if they have a hijab on. Um, there was recently an uproar in the, in the National Assembly when a, a woman with a hijab, a scarf, was spotted in the, in the gallery and people said, well, there's a law against that. Well, there isn't, in fact. It turns out that you have, you have the right to do that as long as you're, if you're a man, you have to wear a coat. But a woman can have hijab. In any case, there's been increased attention to, uh, to the problem of contaminating public space, as these French people see it, with religious signs. And indeed, this extension into all public space is what, is what we have seen this year, very recently, when a parliamentary committee proposed to ban the complete veil, by which they mean the, the niqab, from any government space or public transport. And a strong element on the committee urged that the garment be banned anywhere in public, which raises real constitutional questions. But it's a very serious legal proposition. 
This measure, and a number of others, are justified in the name of gender equality and the fight against communalism, defined by Sarkozy as, quote, when people seek to live with others like themselves, which I think would make the most communalist part of Paris, the virtually all white parts of Western Paris and its suburbs, Sarkozy's own base. But the complete veil also is, is, is said to be standing for the subordination of women, as, as the headscarf was said to do a few years ago. And indeed now, as many Islamic practices are said to do. A current debate on French national identity going on at the same time as this debate about the niqab indeed has given rise to a far more general condemnation of Islam on these grounds than in previous years. So how's our analytical model held up? Well, we have found steps by the state through this support and control religions over the centuries to provide external protections in the form of aid, to uh, allow but limit internal restrictions in the form of um, preventing communalism, uh, in the form of guarding uh, social space, in the form of uh, strictly defining what counts as locute and what does not, Scientology, for example, and a concern with even-handedness. Uh, Vide Vianney Silvestre's interpretation of that famous article, too, where even-handedness is the issue, not uh, establishment. The distance between this rather complex model of French secularism, secularism that I have all too quickly laid out for you, on the one hand, and the ideology of laicite as separation, ought to give us pause when we hear about other national models being put forth as analytically sufficient ways of understanding other societies. For example, Dutch multiculturalism, which another, a number of us would argue has never existed. We'll leave that to the third lecture, perhaps. Um, now we turn to another country, of, about which I will say a, a bit less. I want to begin the discussion, and we'll pick it up more in the future. And there's a separate issue raised by looking at Indonesia. It's the issue of whether we can, we can see secularism in countries that are avowedly not a-religious, and where indeed there may be an explicit religious presence in the political and legal systems, and thus do not look liberal in the Anglo-American sense, nor Republican in the French sense, but where there are also clearly recognized limits on religion and protections. Now, Indonesia, a little bit of background. I didn't give you background on France. I assume you all know where it is and all that sort of thing. 300 distinct languages, thus cultures, whatever that might mean, spread over a large area. Um, 85% Muslim, but the constitution is based on monotheism, which is stretched to include Hinduism and Buddhism and very recently Confucianism as recognized religions. Everyone has their religion identified. And what I want to focus here very briefly is the role pl played by Islamic law to test our argument about secularism. In independence in 1945, Indonesia inherited a European civil law traditions, uh, the civil tradition from the, from the Dutch from the French, uh, the Dutch had also created Islamic tribunals in several parts of Java, the, large, the, uh, the most populous island. But they limited their jurisdiction, and indeed the trend in 20th century Dutch governance was to limit, increasingly limit the reach of Islamic law. At the same time, in most parts of the country, Muslims organized marriage and family life in general along some mixture of Islamic law and customary law according to their own understanding, largely for those of you who know, the, the Shafi'i Madhab. But there was no national system of Islamic law. In 1945, the drafters of the Constitution considered a clause that would have included, quote, the obligation for Muslims to carry out the Sharia. They did not, in the end, include what are seven words in Indonesia, so they're often 
talked about as the Tujukata, or seven words, for two reasons that remain relevant to current debates. First, the success of the national project creating Indonesia was by no means assured. Indeed, there were five more years of fighting the Dutch afterwards. And secondly, Christian regions in the East might have seceded from an Islamic state, even if the clause would not have directly affected them. Finally, many Muslims were not at all happy either with the idea that the state would enforce Islamic law. But in succeeding years, laws were passed that created a system of Islamic law. 1974, uh, I won't give you all the legal details, but a law passed in 1974, strengthened by a, a, a new system, national system of Islamic court set out in 1989, plus a 1991, still very recent, less than 10 years, uniform Islamic legal code, did two major things. First of all, and I'm just going to talk about marriage and divorce as a case, they made women's and men's grounds for divorce and indeed procedures for divorce very similar. This became a judicial divorce system where you had, to you had the same burden of proof. And secondly, that the man who up till now had routinely pronounced the divorce, the talaq, just on his own, and that was effective, it had an Islamic effect and a legal effect recognized by the state. Now that was no longer recognized and he was only allowed to legally pronounce a divorce, a talaq, once the court had said you may do this and in the presence of the, of the judge. So this is a, a, a substantial change. It raised questions right after the, uh, more after the 1991 compilation than the 1974 law, although they could have arisen then as well. So the question that, that arose in, in many cases was this, if a man, man divorces his wife out of court by pronouncing the talak at home, for example, is he divorced, albeit in violation of the requirements to go before a judge, broken a law. Or is he still married? So the question comes up in cases of second marriage without the permission of the first wife, that sort of thing. Although one can find Supreme Court decisions on both sides of the question, the overall effect of court rulings has been to say that marriages and divorces only occur on any reading of occur here, Islamically, legally, if uh, the persons involved follow the requirements of the law. And in the case proposed above, the husband and wife would still be married if the husband just pronounced a divorce on his own. In other words, the court has effectively curtailed the power of Muslims to marry or divorce on their own and given that power to state-appointed judges. Viewed another way, uh, the locus of performativity has shifted from the individual Muslim, in this case, the case of a man divorcing his wife, to the judges themselves. So by the end of the 20th century, or now for that matter, it just sounds more dramatic than you can say at the end of it, in 2010, all provinces and districts in Indonesia had Islamic courts with the same jurisdictions, with the Supreme Court exercising powers of cassation. There's also the civil uh, tribunal system as well. It goes in parallel. Furthermore, the court had made clear that general lines of civil law thinking applied to Islamic law as well, that the executive and the legislative branches made the law, and the courts enforced those laws. This is the civil law tradition, remember. Islamic law was to be treated in the same way as other laws, and Islamic judges were to be thought of as first and foremost judges occupying their place in a national uniform legal system. Whatever might one want to say about Sharia in one's private life, in public life it had become positive law. Now, can we consider Indonesia to have a secular mode of governance? Well, the efforts to fashion a system of Islamic law was indeed designed to put into practice both external protections and to allow but limit internal restrictions. External protections have here to do with extending to the right of Muslims not only to worship in their mosques, which has never been in question, but also to have available to them tribunals that would judge family law issues in accordance 
with Islamic law, a long-standing demand that is linked in the minds of many with the fight against Dutch colonialism. The limits on internal restrictions, the second part, come by way of transforming Islamic norms and practices into positive law. State-run institutions that arrogate to themselves the right to decide what sort of measures are acceptable or not, and also to implement Islamic laws as acts of marrying, divorcing, dividing property and inheritance and so forth, all with gender equality as a guiding principle in shaping legislation. There are other limits on internal restrictions. Interestingly, the Indonesian government has reacted much like the French government against what they see as forms of religion, usually Islamic, that close themselves off from the rest of society, communitarism in the Indonesian fashion. But various times, sects and closed groups of Muslims have been forbidden to operate. The bans carried out in the name of the importance of social interaction among everyone and national unity. It almost could be said in French. It would work just as well. What about even-handedness in Indonesia? Well, religious organizations such as the two large Islamic bodies, the NU and the Muhammadiyah, Christian churches, other bodies, are guaranteed the right to practice their religion. They are protected in law against attacks, either physical or otherwise, on buildings, persons, or on their rights to exist. Now, the list is not unlimited. It's not unlimited. Ahmadiyya, for example, uh, is, uh, has not enjoyed this, this protection fully. Its status is, I think, still in, in, in doubt. Nor has enforcement been perfect. There have been attacks. But Christians, for example, do well in education, government, the economy, and the military, far beyond their numbers. So we could say that the criterion of even-handedness in principle here is, is at work. So what's the crisis? It comes from precisely the measures, measures taken to enact Islamic norms as law. Precisely that which, I would argue, takes Indonesia into a category of um, a form of secularism. For Muslims, the rules of their religion have a sacred source, and educated scholars are the ones to interpret those sources and tell individuals how they should behave. You go to your local alim, somebody who knows the texts. But when the state enacts Islamic law, it's setting limits on what either scholars or ordinary people can do. But does the state have a monopoly on an enacting Islamic law? The state says yes, but there have been several recent challenges to that notion, very recent. Two of them, just very briefly. One, I'll just mention, a number of regions of Indonesia, both municipalities and regions, Kabupaten, have enacted regulations designed to uh, enforce, Islam, enforce Islam, either Islamic dress, uh, to uh, encourage Quran recitation. Sometimes they have to do more with morals than, uh, than Islam, but to the extent that they are Islamic rules, they're done in the name of Islam, they run the risk of being overturned by the national government or the courts as violating the monopoly that the state claims it has on, um, on Sharia, on, on Islamic law. Indeed, in 2008, the president of the Constitutional Court declared that he thought that these regulations should be overturned. Secondly, and more dramatic, I think, is the special case of Aceh. It happens to be the province in which I've done uh, my work over the years in Indonesia. Aceh has long vaunted its Islamic character historical, historically, as well as its crucial role in the, in the National Revolution. Um, there's been civil war during the, there was, was civil war raging during the 90s, but there have been separatist movements uh, far before that. I've never been in Aceh when there, until recently when there wasn't some sort of a, <coughs> a battle going on. And right up to the devastating tsunami of December 2004, uh, the civil war continued, negotiations continued, history is very complex, and out of all that, and indeed during the process, Aceh was given substantial powers, including the right to pass laws based on Islam. But the national government retains jurisdiction over matters of justice, giving the Supreme Court the power to quash any decisions taken by courts in Aceh, and the right to annul Achenese statutes should they conflict with public order 
or with national laws. So, but there's a contradiction. Aceh is caught between enjoying autonomy in religious law matters, on the one hand, and obeying dictates from the legally superior national parliament, the higher courts, on the other. Indeed, two different laws give very different senses of the new jurisdiction. One, uh, one law says that um, the, the new Sharia courts in Aceh enjoy jurisdiction over, quote, Islamic Sharia as found within the system of national laws, suggests the hierarchy, subordination. Uh, that's the, the special autonomy law of 2001, for those of you who are following, you guys maybe following these things. Um, on the other hand, the, uh, a law passed in 2002 grants these courts jurisdiction over matters of family law, commercial law, and jinaya, criminal law. In other words, far beyond the scope of religious law as found within the system of national law. Authorities in Aceh are divided. Traditional rural scholars are pushing an extension of Sharia. Both the governor, who, who uh, was a leader in the rebel movement, and the, after the, last year's elections, the leading political party, the Aceh party, uh, uh, are very skeptical, if not opposed, to these extensions of, of, uh, of Sharia. And uh, the appellate judges, with whom I've been working, are also very skeptical. One told me he would rather see a halt to further implementation of Sharia, but he, 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 he may not, nor does he have any uh, desire to, make his opinion public. But once laws, and this has happened just recently, begin to conflict explicitly with national laws, this position and this silence may become harder to maintain. The first test of this unclear legal structure may have begun in September 2009, before newly elected deputies could take their seats in the Achenese parliament. When the outgoing Achenese parliament endorsed a draft Islamic criminal code, which includes penalties of stoning to death for adul adulterers and caning of unmarried people caught engaging in sex or in homosexual conduct. Local and national human rights groups spoke out against the law, but it became law 30 days later. Gov the governor, Rwanda Yusuf, who's against a lot of this, refused to sign it. And the chair of the, the, the Ulama Council, the MPU, uh, Muslim Ibrahim, called for the draft bill to be revised. Indonesia's constitutional court said that the measure could be challenged as unconstitutional. But in Aceh, it's very difficult to move outside the sphere of Sharia as the sphere of legitimate discourse. So someone like Muslim Ibrahim, the chair of this Ulama Council, for example, on the one hand, calls for revisions to make the procedures for investigating uh, charges um, of adultery or Ill illegitimate sex very difficult, indeed would make the law impossible to enforce. But on the other hand, he has to say things like something he said recently, there is no Muslim who is opposed to the law, especially as it is God's law. It's just a matter of time, whether to implement it now or in the future. The governor has to walk, uh, walk the same thin line. The import of this case is not to say what we think about this sort of law, but to see how it targets the weak point of the Indonesian mode of governance of religions. For Indonesia to remain a secular state in the way that I'm including it in this general analytical framework, it must remain capable of enforcing limits on internal restrictions, such as the new Aceh law or the regional regulations, in order to guarantee basic human rights and due process through a unified legal system. The crisis is a political one whose word counts in the last instance, that's the question. And the jury is still out. So, my concluding remarks. How has the law fared? Right, that was just that part, and that's Aceh. How has the law, how has our schema fared? I think that it picks up our general intuitions, that secularism has something to do with protecting religions, but also subjecting them to higher level rules and laws, and treating all religions fairly. That's basically what I've said. <coughs> Fair does not mean identical. Christians in Indonesia do not demand Christian religious courts. 
The Indian situation, which some of you may want to draw a parallel to, is different because the same courts draw from multiple religious uh, traditions, religious law traditions. This scheme also directs us to the processes and mechanisms of, governments, of governance in each society. I think this is where its usefulness lies. And away from national models, which I think can lead us down the wrong track, as in the case of laicity. I think these models are more operators in political processes than they are reflective of them. Looking across these two very different societies focuses our attention on two very different versions of a structurally similar issue, which has to do with the role of the modern state in guaranteeing both a certain measure of religious autonomy and conformity to broader, even universalistic norms. Not to rework the analysis here, but in these two cases, we were directed to examine the problems of limiting internal restrictions while guaranteeing religious freedom. In Indonesia, this tension stems from the state's claim to monopolize Islamic legal acts. In the case of France, it stems from the question of a visible Islamic presence in public space and the interpretations placed on that presence. In both cases, it, it has to do with how the state, how far the state can go in limiting internal restrictions by the community. This approach I, I put to you then opens up possibilities for further comparisons. That's what it's designed to do. If Indonesia and, say, India can be approached from this perspective and thus for these purposes be considered to have secular modes of governing religion, what about Egypt? Whereby the Constitution, the Quran, is supposed to be the source of law. Here things get trickier, but again, we would ask in what ways state law limits restrictions advocated by religious authorities and to what extent treatment of Copts does or does not reflect even-handedness. I'm less interested at this moment in the answer than I am in the approach. If it leads to lively discussion, and we'll see in a minute, and now, then I think it is success. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. Uh, we have to, got some time for questions, and we've got a roving microphone, um, which I'll ask you to wait for it to arrive at you before you start asking your lovely, short, clear question. There are two, in fact, uh, roving microphones. In, indeed, there are. Yeah. Um, I am going to take advantage, though, to just ask a very quick question myself, if you don't mind. And it's, a, it's just in terms of the kind of position that you've outlined, uh, conceiving secularism in terms of modes of governing religions in a certain way, uh, and that way would itself be not a religious way of governing them, it's just these formal points about limitation, protection and even-handedness. But the, what worries me about this uh, setup is that it, it sort of pretends that states fall from the sky in a religion-independent context, mm. which of course they don't. Uh, and in fact, you talked about Hegel, about Hegel earlier, and Hegel argued very powerfully that <coughs> states are based on religion. They have, the form of the state is uh, dependent on the form of the religion the, of the people whose state it is. And so I, I'm just not clear about this idea of secularism as a mode of governing religion when the formation of that secular state, or supposedly secular state, might itself be religiously informed. Does that matter to well, you? Well, there's overcoming not? contradictions also. So it doesn't matter? I don't know that it matters. No, I have to think more about it. I think it does matter. Um, indeed, I think often the, uh, the, force of the, uh, the force of the contradiction, such as the ones that I've located, often comes precisely from that. I mean, France would be an example, right, where it's the very vehemence of the 
of the of the antithesis to the Catholic Church that produces what we could see as the, the synthesis of these arrangements. But the force comes from that very the very opposition. So there is a sort of propelling outside the religious sphere, uh, where not not it's not it's not claiming that um, they fall from the sky. It's rather it would be to uh, if we wanted to look at these in more depth historically look at the point in which there is an attempt to oppose, overcome, go beyond uh, in, some, in some way. You're never free of your religious background. It really isn't to say that. Uh, but you're able then to call on extra-religious norms. Okay, very good. Uh, now we've got one at the front here. We'll start here. If you want to come down. Thank you. Um, that was very stimulating. But what it stimulated in me is that uh, you seem to have provided us with a normative, um, and not necessarily. I want to test you with one further question, mm -hmm. which is, what would be a non-secular state? Mm -hmm. right. um, I, 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 theocracies, even theocracies had to rule over other religions. So it seems to me that um, your criteria are criteria of how secular any state mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. rather than being able to define secular estates. Right. Thank you. Well, as you, uh, do I respond one on one? Oh, on why one? not? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> no, as you, as you correctly observed, I'm really less interested in your definition then coming up with an analytical framework which will allow us to pinpoint tensions. And you're right, there then can be a normative element in that uh, to the extent that we wish to see, for example, human international human rights norms worked into particular state regulatory contexts, then this is a way we can, this is a way we can look at that. So what would be a non, what would be a non-secular state? Well, uh, a state which is not um, uh, even-handed, a state which is not protecting religions other than one that is the religion of the state. Um, there's a great concern about this in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example. I wouldn't think of that as a secular state. Those clearly wouldn't, wouldn't fall into it. But I'm less concerned with saying, you know, we have 45 this way and 72 the other, whatever the number, number of states in the world is. I've never known. But France um, might come into that category at a certain point. Non-secular state? Yeah, if it's not even-handed, if it's got one dominant religion. Well, again, it, we're talking about ideals and principles. Not, uh, I mean, yeah, nobody's, nobody's even-handed, right? I mean, you know. Christianity versus Islam in the U.S. In practice, of course, you can't get elected if you're a Muslim. You, and you, you, as I said, it helps a lot if you're if you're born again. It's rather the uh, the structural arrangements that I want to point to, not uh, not the uh, not the degree to which people in their everyday be, uh, lives or rulers in their everyday lives think in ways which are completely even-handed. Okay. You don't look satisfied. <laughs> We've got another one down the front, but. Uh, for Spatial equality, does anybody want to? <laughs> okay, so just pass the mic along there to the third. That was great. Um, I've got sort of slight confusion over whether in the in Indonesian case, um, because Islam and Islamic law, as you pointed out, were partly a kind of anti-colonial cultural struggle. Um, at what point is a religion got to be considered a religion and at what point could it be considered a political force with a cultural dimension which is sort of more anti-colonial than it is anti-secular? I'm just worried about what, what makes religion religion. And I also wondered, 
given that the, the main struggle you described was over um, a way of governing law, not so much a way of governing religion and religious practice, it sounded more like you were talking about governing government than governing religion. Right. Well, I, I, again, I'm not. I'm not really worried about how to recognize religion. Uh, again, you know, as in that sense, parallel to my response to Stefan's question. Um, uh, governing, yes. In this case, in this very, and again, I took a very tiny case because get into any, you know, you have to get somewhere down into the details and can only do it. Um, this question, for example, of a man repudiating his wife, right, which is a religious act and is an act that finds support in fiqh, in jurisprudence, right, but may not have anything to do with modern law. When I use Islamic law, I try to use that to mean some sort of modern legal system. It's a legal system, first and foremost, right? That's the point I was trying to make. So in this case, it is, it is, uh, um, governing through law acts which are not themselves part of that modern legal system but are part of the Islamic tradition. Okay, thanks. Uh, um, one right at the back first and then one down here. What is your perspective on the French um, Le citoyen, which uh, the Americans also see as the citizen, uh, in, in the sense, uh, a citizen, uh, according to the concepts, you can actually change in his uh, law position depending on, the, on which religion he changes, because if there's no citizen, one and, uh, and every citizen equal to the law, uh, the legal position of a citizen can then hence change depending on what religion that the uh, uh, that uh, citizen belongs to, and that legal position can change to life then? Um, in some places, not particularly in France, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I understood the connection between the citoyen part and your other example. Certainly it's true that in Indonesia, uh, let me try this and you can tell me whether it's in the spirit of the question. In Indonesia, what legal, what legal jurisdiction you're in depends on your religion. Uh, so, it, you know, so if you're if you're not a Muslim, or indeed, and the mixed marriages poses certain dicey questions, you go to a civil court. It's only if you're Muslims you go to the the, the, the other one. So in that sense, your legal yeah, your legal status changes. Of course. Is that the direction of the question? No, no. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I wonder to what extent do you think that the uh, the term separation of church and state, or of religion and, uh, and state, is simply the wrong metaphor, it's virtually a spatial metaphor it seems to me, uh, and this is, there isn't a single state in Europe which comes anywhere near even American standards of separation of church and state as from 1947 to 1992 or whatever, and of course the United States does not itself. Um, is this simply an illusory term which we should simply abandon and look for something else? Thank you. My, my comment earlier on that was that it's part of a normative stance, it's a, it's a position. It's a slogan. It's a cry, and, and the, we all we all need these. And if so, if one is arguing for disentanglement, I mean, there are all sorts of you know. I didn't touch issues of the U.S. Supreme Court's role in all this, which of course is crucial, crucial. But they use metaphors that are like this, you know, excessive entanglement, right? That's a, that's a, that's a legal phrase in the U.S. of the state with uh, with religious matters, which can be one of the fifty states in a sense. Um, so, uh, you know, yes, it, 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 is, it is part of that universe of words that are rallying cries, but I don't think it's very useful as an analytical concept. So I think, I, I think we agree on that. Okay, part presumably from the analytical con 
concept that you outlined, which yeah, be yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any more? Um, maybe I wasn't provocative enough. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody one, else one hanging. Here, yeah. Very quick question, which is probably um, answerable in a single word. Is the freedom to be of any religion or none a necessary prerequisite for a secular mm. society? Right. Excellent. Well, I have to think. I have to think that over some more. You know, my initial tendency would be to say, insofar as we um, we have a normative uh, shopping list, say, and we and we states that would would make the sort of claims necessary to be in the universe that I'm talking about, that that would be one of those elements, that, that religion is a matter of, that you ought to be able to change or not to have a religion. Um, again, I'm not so concerned about definitions because many of these uh, countries, including Indonesia, in, in, in Indonesia you have to have a religion. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're, you're prosecuted for not having one, but that's just the way the conceptual universe is set up, right? So I'm somewhere between saying, well, yes, ideally, that would be certainly true. And the issue of apostasy is a big one for Islam. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important question, right? Um, but I'm less interested in saying, you know, Islam has to change, has to reform. It. I, rather, than, rather than doing that as an anthropologist, I'm more interested in saying uh, what, in particular, state sorts of spaces for freedom, uh, what kinds of limits on scholarly um, uh, proclamations about Islam, for example, are placed. And in Indonesia, there's a fair amount of space. There's a fair amount of conversion in Indonesia, too, between, although less now than 20 years ago. Things have hardened up a bit, I think. But, so I'm, 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 I'm sitting on the fence. I'm with you in spirit. Uh, but again, I'm not, I'm not interested in a definition, right? But I think it's part of the normative framework that we would probably bring to Talking to these, talking to these countries. We just add something yeah. else, if I may, which is I'm a I'm a strong believer in the the there being um, you know more and less effective ways to change people's positions and to help people move to reform and that sort of thing. I think the the, the, the least effective are to stand outside, and the most effective are to, are to say well, within your tradition what are the what are the possible moves one can make for interpreting, reinterpreting particular texts, that sort of thing, right? So there are, there are plenty of moves that can be made, so I, Islam is the case I know best, but within all traditions, for um, these issues of changing religion or of having no religion at all. It, took, it was only fairly recently, I, someone will tell me when it was exactly that the Catholic Church said it would no longer go after people who had, uh, who had left the church. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, right? So it's a hard thing for, uh, for religious bodies to, uh, to do. But that's why I think that this sort of analytical framework, I believe, can get us inside the system enough that we can then say, all right, you know, given your own precept um, that there are certain more or less universal norms and you want to limit groups, restrictions on life within those groups, then you want to go a little bit further and make sure that uh, changing religion is preserved, et cetera. But that's, a, that's another step. It's more a question of, of um, political efficacy, I think. It's a bit beyond what I'm, what I'm doing. I hope I fudged uh, sufficiently to not be quotable. I like the idea here of uh, trying to identify certain things as tests for you to see if, um, yeah. uh, whether certain things are a necessary condition for something being a secular environment uh, or society, uh, even if it's not a necessary, uh, a sufficient condition. And another one might be, and it, it sort of came to mind when you were talking about the Indonesian case, was um, how far does a public space need to be free of domination from a religious authority 
to be a secular space. I mean, you've obviously have the you gave Public the French example. Yeah, you gave the French example, which at certain times in its rallying call, as it were, in its in, in its uh, slogans, mm -hmm. would want to say the public space should be free of all domination from any religious authority. But obviously, that's not the way it's lived out. Right. But if it was lived out to an extent in which a public space was quite clearly dominated by a particular religious orthodoxy or, or authority, how far can that go and it still be, in your view, secular? Well, again, what I'm trying to do is look at the, the structures of governance and not you know, propose a sort of, okay, you know, 67% pushes us over the limit <coughs> kind yeah. of definitional test. Because clearly, in any of these, in Indonesia, for example, um, uh, there are there are public spaces, say mosques, where there is certain certain ways of thinking, certain rules that govern the way people behave at that moment. Well, it's public space. There's uh, there's religious authority at work, but I imagine that's true in many churches in England as well, if you still have them, or in the in the U.S. Uh, so there, you know, it's certain it, whether whether you call them public or not is one thing, but the notion that we should be free of any sense of domination of any, of any sort at all moments of our lives in all spaces, that's that's a pretty hard pretty hard test. Okay, uh, one right at the back, and then up the front. Um, you mentioned that you are not really interested in, in defining uh, own definition, but a normative perspective. I'm not sure if I understood you well, but how can you approach a topic or a subject without really differentiating between the religious, the social, the cultural aspects in one religion? Because religions are quite flexible and fluid nowadays. Yeah. And even the laws, like it's, it's becoming rationalized throughout history. We can see it in... Uh, in the European secular context, if such a thing exists, but also in the Muslim world and um, other corners. How do you deal with this without definition? And how can we talk about normative perspectives without defining the religious from the culture and so on? Thank you. Right. Um, thanks. You know, as a, th thanks for the question. You know, as a social scientist, I, I think of situations and then what that means. So I'm at a, I'm at a fundraiser in Ohio where there's a, there's, a, there's a prayer given at the beginning of the fundraiser and people came to socialize. Is that social? Is it religious? Is it political? And why do we want to ask that question? What we want to know is how is it that uh, these things articulate? How is it, what are the processes by which political life uh, enters people necessarily in that particular community uh, into certain sorts of engagements with, uh, with, with religion? So you see, I'm, I'm more interested in the concrete rather than uh, sort of at a very high level, what is the secular, what is the religious, that's, the, that's that first approach that I, you know, Talal has written a lot about that, but I don't think it helps we're trying to figure out how to understand what's going on in Indonesia or in France or in England or in the US.
Okay, Tariq loves Wittgenstein. Um, right, so let me, let me approach that in two ways, if I can remember what they both were. Uh, one is to bring up this example of Islamic law in Indonesia, and then what I was emphasizing is, uh, what is it? It's law. It's uh, a set of institutions which, in terms of the way they function, in terms of the responsibilities of the judges, works like any other legal system. They're working from positive law, enacted statutes that do themselves have a genealogy uh, that brings us back to sometimes some sort of work on a thick book that was done in some particular place. Uh, but assigning them to one place or the other uh, is, I think, less useful than seeing how the particular institutional configuration, in this case it's a legal one, constrains the actions of, uh, of these people. Um, the, uh, the, sorry, there's something else you said that was, oh yeah, right. So let me invoke Talal Asad ag again in a way, Talal Asad for me was a great inspiration when I was writing a book a number of years ago about, uh, about Islam in uh, the form of an early paper he did on the notion of the anthropology of Islam as the study of, of tradition. Um, and precisely looking, uh, taking what we could call an actor point of view, an actor-oriented point of view, and looking at the way in which Muslims draw on the Islamic tradition in particular ways as our subject matter. The next lecture is going to be about that, right? About a whole different Assad in some sense. Um, and then what we find, of course, is that um, the question of does this particular Islamic uh, law or rule or norm actually have a clear source in scripture or not becomes less interesting than studying the process of, of appropriation, right? And then validation by various sorts of authorities. We can keep talking. <laughs> okay, uh, there's one down here and another up there. Let's start here. Thanks. Thank you. Um, following on from your mentioning of uh, apostasy, um, a couple of years ago there was um, quite a high-profile political case in Malaysia mm. of, I think, um, a Malaysian f woman citizen who um, had originally converted to Islam um, for marriage um, because, I mean, the, the sort of religious mix in Southeast Asia is different to um, the Middle East whereby like, there's a lot of non-Abrahamic um, sort of uh, unions um, and she converted back out or sort of left the fold uh, when the relationship broke down um, so which raised a lot of uh, controversy around the traditional Sharia um, response to apostasy. Um, how, what was the response in Indonesia and how did, how does that play out in your um, right. framework of Indonesia? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Malaysia is quite different in the, in the sense that um, on at least two grounds. One is that it's a federal system, so different states. Kelantan, for example, is governed in a whole different way um, than, than, than Penang. Um, but also because uh, there was a decision by the highest court in Malaysia that the, the Sharia court was the only court that could validate a conversion, and it was hanged if it was going to validate her conversion out of Islam, right? So there was no way she could leave Islam. Yeah? And so there I would say, um, you know, again, I'm, you know, uh, is Malaysia sector state or not? I, I have more problems with that one than with Indonesia, but I would say the usefulness of this framework is to say, look, if you're going to have a legal system, what sorts of rights do you want to have? Think that through in some way. And then you want to have limits on the ability of, say, a Muslim community with its ulama to restrict um, uh, leaving that community. So you, know, you would want to argue. And, so it might be that this approach gives somebody who wants to make this argument in Malaysia then a, a theoretical grounding for saying, where is your restricting of limits of internal, of, where is your limiting of internal restrictions within the Muslim community? Yeah, and, and there, you know, especially in Kelantan, it would be, it starts to look more like a theocracy sometimes. Going back to your question before, it, precisely for that sort of thing. 
Yes, gentlemen there. Just going back to the question above, and basically your retort just a second ago, mm. I was just wondering, um, with regards to this hierarchical system where the Sharia courts are subservient to the, uh, to the, to the uh, justice court, yeah. is that ever masked within a pseudo-Islamic framework, i.e., is there any kind of appearance made that this is legally valid within an Islamic framework? Right. <coughs> yeah, a um, couple of answers. It's a very good question, and it's one of my real interests uh, is working with judges in the way in which they justify their decisions in different ways to different publics, which gets at the heart of what you're asking about. Um, there are two kinds of, just to answer the empirical issue, two kinds of responses. One is there's that blanket category of siyasa sharia. So, yes, we have to have uh, restrictions enacted by the state to govern the way that we allow people to do what they have an Islamic right to do. So, the husband who wants to divorce his wife by saying talaq, he's, you can do it. We have not infringed upon that right. I'm giving you the government position. We have not infringed upon that right. We just set the conditions, as the doctrine of siyasa sharia allows us to do, for him doing that. And then we say, okay, go ahead, do your, do your thing, right? So that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is even closer to the language you were using, whereby uh, one appellate judge in Aceh I've been working with will describe to me how he will make a ruling based on uh, either what's in the code book or if there isn't something he might he might have a sense through his sense of maslaha or social welfare of the ruling he'd like to give for example on the, the question of children who weren't, aren't, don't have legal status because their parents weren't legally married um, and he'll say, well, look, ha there's, there's a Hanafi ruling which allows us to do X or Y or something. And when the judges are deliberating, they'll talk about this because they can Islamically legitimate it among themselves by drawing on this Hanafi school. Remember, Indonesia is a Shafi'i madhab or legal tradition place. But then he will publicly talk to the conservative rural, rural, rural scholars who want to remain Shafi'i. He'll say, yes, but Imam Shafi'i said X. And he'll come up with a sort of general statement. So it's even more complicated than you were saying. There's also these different kinds of justification depending on how mix and match you want to be in your looking for different Islamic sources or whether you want to follow straight down the, the line with one, one madhab. It's very, very important, this sort of work in justification. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm sort of wondering, uh, you framed a lot of your talking about secularisms and sort of the three modes of governing religions. And it's sort of an interaction between diff two different bodies, between the state that it's got its principles that it wants to make sure religions don't violate, and the religion has its own things it wants to do. I was sort of wanting to ask, like, specifically with reference to the Indonesian example, where you have uh, the religious tribunals in the Supreme Court saying what Islamic law is, and even more in the Egyptian example you flagged up, right. where it's the job of the Supreme Court to define what the Islam, which has to be the basis for all legislation, is. Right. And so you sort of have a secular court creating its reading of Islam, yeah. and Islam becomes an internal construction of the secular law. Like, to what extent then that stops being a question of two bodies interacting and one trying to limit what the other does and like sort of meeting in the middle when like the religion then becomes a construct of the secular law and the secular state itself? To what extent you stop having two bodies and just start having one then? Sorry. Right, which I think goes back to your, it's a <laughs> yeah. different, different take on your question. Well, I think the, right, right, uh, the two body problem, Kantorovitz, right, the two body problem. Um, there are, there's a bunch of different answers to this. Let me just try out one, which is that uh, empirically you still, you still have these. The fact that, say, the Supreme Court 
uh, or a body of people who were brought together in the case of Indonesia to come up with this 1991 compilation of Islamic law um, say that this is what Islamic law is. As it gets back to your question too, it was presented as an ijma, as a sort of a consensus, bottom up from all the ulama in Indonesia, that this was the code. Well, that was a that was a farce in some. I mean, there, you know, there, there there was a certain you couldn't get you couldn't have an ijma on all these technical details, uh, especially since many of them aren't Shafi'i compatible. Um, but there is that you still have then people who are saying no, we don't buy that from our reading of fiqh. Um, here's the so so that there is still that Islamic side, right? D despite those, yeah. And then secondly, uh, it's not just the state versus sort of non-state actors. There are very different positions within the state. So the Supreme Court has tended to be a kind of a modernizer, uh, uh, and was pushing early on for reform in in adat law, customary law, as well as in Islam, through a lens of uh, gender equality, pushing up against. Um, often the legislature, right, and then other other bodies. So it's not even just two actors, it's again more complicated. Right, well I'm afraid uh, we're out of time now, but uh, fortunately for all of us, this is not the end of John's performances at the LSE. We've got two more lectures to come, the next one in a month's time, in the 2nd of March. <coughs> but for now, uh, I think we should all thank John Bowen very much. Thank you.